Are you bewildered and confused about what's happening with the Democratic presidential primary? Don't worry. Today, we break it all down. This is the Issues Watch podcast. Hi, I'm Jeff Kazerman, Vice President of Government Relations at the New Jersey Society of CPAs, and welcome to Episode 35. The race to become the next president of the United States is on. But first, we have to get through the nationwide primary elections. Since the Republican nomination of President Trump is a foregone conclusion, we're going to focus today on the Democratic primaries. First, we'll look at the primary process itself which can be quite confusing. What's the difference between a caucus and a primary, a delegate and a superdelegate? How many delegates do you need to win? We'll also look at the leading candidates, their strengths and weaknesses, and who are the favorites at this point to win. Our guest today to discuss these issues is Bill Pascrell III. And no, he's not Congressman Bill Pascrell. That's his father. Bill is a lobbyist with the prestigious New Jersey lobbying firm Princeton Public Affairs Group. He also served as the Passaic County Council for more than 10 years and has served as an advisor to more federal and state candidates than I can count. I've known Bill for 30 years. I first met him when he was the president of the Rutgers Newark Student Council, where I went to college. I was considering a career in politics, and I was told that he was the guy to see. I don't remember all the details of what we discussed, but I vividly remember his answer when I asked him, aren't all the politicians corrupt? No, he said, they're not. They're just like any other group. Most are hardworking, good people. Of course, there are some bad apples, but that's true of any group business owners, doctors, teachers, and on and on. And that was something that I quickly found out was true, as skeptical as I was at the time. I've never forgotten it and find myself saying the same thing when people ask me that very question. So let's get started with our discussion with Bill on the presidential primaries. I want to let you know at the outset that Bill is a prominent Democratic strategist and pundit. But we think that's appropriate because we're talking today about the Democratic primary. Because things change in the world of politics on just about a daily basis, it's important to note that this conversation took place on February 13th. Now, here we go. Hi, Bill. Thanks for joining us today. Good to be here, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Sure. So let's start with the basics. Can you tell us a little bit about the Democratic primary process this year? Sure. You know, I think uh, most experts in the field, perhaps including myself, believe that the fight for the Democratic nomination for president of the United States is going to go on for months. Uh, The reason is a combination of a crowded field where there's no single candidate standing out amongst uh, the party stalwarts or voters and a delicate allocation system that awards delegates pro rata uh, with a 15% threshold. There's a lot of volatility. It's, It's an unsettled process. And it's seemingly as of right now, 
uh, wide open. Nearly a week after the caucuses, the Iowa Democratic Party deemed former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Peter Buttigieg right. the, the winner a week after the process. Yeah. And awarded him uh, just one more delegate than Bernie Sanders, who oh. followed closely behind. But the Sanders campaign has requested a partial re-canvas, or what we would call in New Jersey a recount, mm-hmm. because of tabulation errors uh, that threw the caucus into chaos and left much of the political world in the dark about any of the results uh, for, for, for nearly uh, 24 hours. So that's part of it. The other part of it is uh, we are now past the first caucus, the first primary in New Hampshire. And although the field has winnowed, there continues to be candidates jumping into the field, like most recently, former Massachusetts Governor Patrick Duvall and uh, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Uh, the, the, The interesting thing is, by the time we get to the end of February, February 22nd, is the Nevada caucus, and February 29th is the South Carolina primary. By the end of February, we will have only uh, gone through the process of selecting less than 4% of the delegates. So the big day where I think there'll be a lot of moving, you know, they call Friday moving day and four-day golf tournaments. (laughs) Moving day is going to be March 3rd, the evening of March 3rd, uh, which is Super Tuesday. And there are 16 states holding contests that day with 40% of the delegates at stake. Wow. Um, They should have that one first. You know, it's it's an open, wide-open process here. The, The race will likely go on well after those primaries and caucuses because delegates are awarded proportionately, meaning you have to meet a 15% threshold. When when you look at the democratic process, there's been a couple of changes made, but there's also some consistent ways uh, that we've been doing for decades in terms of delegate allocation. So there's a couple of ways to win delegates. You win a congressional race in a certain state, um, and uh, you get above the 15%, and then they're apportioned based upon congressional district. And then they're also apportioned where you might not get to the 15% threshold in a particular congressional district, but you get above the 15% threshold statewide. So delegates are awarded statewide and in congressional districts. And as you know, we have multiple states with only uh, one a congressional district, and then those states are awarded based upon state legislative district winnings. So it is a very complicated, convoluted process. Those that are going to go the length uh, have to have really good attorneys and delegate counters and trackers because that's important. Yeah, Um, it it sure is complicated. Yeah, exactly. There's another interesting system we saw to play out a little bit in New Hampshire. Uh, There's two types of primary and caucus systems, open and closed primaries and caucuses. So open primaries and caucuses uh, allow voters, regardless of party affiliation, to vote in either the Republican or Democratic contest. And as you may have heard uh, through the media, President Trump and his team were encouraging a lot of their supporters to go to the polls and vote for uh, the candidate he thought at the time was most uh, good for his interests, and that was Bernie Sanders. That might have helped Bernie. And although Senator Sanders won New Hampshire, not by much, by a point and a half to Mayor Pete Buttigieg, he he barely won it, but he also had 6% less vote than he did four years ago against uh, Hillary Clinton. 
in a closed primary uh, system, it, it, it limits the voters uh, to their party affiliation. Uh, so closed contests prevent independent or third-party voters from participating. Then you have this other, you have pledged delegates yeah. versus unpledged delegates. And, you know, how you police and enforce that is a whole nother set of beans. Uh, there's also what are called superdelegates. Those are party leaders and elected officials at the local, federal level who are not bound to the state's results and can support whomever they want. But superdelegates this year, for the first time in modern political history of the Democratic Party, are not permitted to vote in the first ballot. Oh, that's interesting. They are permitted to vote in the second ballot. So presumably, we're going to go beyond the first ballot unless something major happens transformationally. The superdelegates will weigh in, and that's, uh, that's a pretty big uh, block of votes. Uh, there's about 750, give or take a few, uh, superdelegates, and those are members of Congress, governors, former presidents, vice presidents, all that. How many delegates um, are there altogether? Like 4,000? Yeah, there's just under 4,000, uh, 3,979. Huh, so, so it's a lot of yeah. superdelegates. Correct. Those are, those are delegates uh, total. Uh, yes. Superdelegates, uh, I guess the number, it's a bit estimated, and I'll tell you why. As of today, 9 o'clock this morning, there's 771 superdelegates. But that can change. Why? Some of them can pass away or wow. whatever, yeah. you know, so you don't, it's not a locked number. It's a floating number. Okay. Uh, and so you may have a member of Congress resign. He's no longer eligible to be a superdelegate, uh, right. but, but former presidents and vice presidents are always eligible. So, so, you know, the, the 3,979 delegates, um, the, the democratic nominee must win a majority of them which is 1991 on the first round. If they don't, then we go into the second round where the 771 come in. Okay, okay. Okay. So um, I want to ask you something that I, I think I read just like half an hour ago. It's not quite what we're talking about right this second, but I mean, it has to do with the whole primary thing. So Joe Biden has done pretty poorly in, the, in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire. I mean, got like, what, 5 6% of the vote? And I think I read today, from a national perspective, he's the number one in the polls. Am I imagining that? Did I read that right? He, he, a couple of things. You're right. That is accurate. Uh, Joe Biden got 8% of the vote in New Hampshire. The top three candidates were Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Amy Klobuchar, and then Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Warren at 9% came in fourth, and Biden at 8% came in fifth. Right now, the delegate count as of today is 22 for Buttigieg, 21 for Sanders, 8 for Warren, 7 for Klobuchar, 6 for Biden, and um, 0 for everybody else. But in the polling, he remains at the top of the heap. Uh, depending on what poll you look at, there are some polls that are showing Bernie Sanders uh, in first place and Biden a few points behind. But the person, one of the persons surging right now is Bloomberg. He was... He's not contesting any of the four initial contests. He's not on the ballot, but he will be on a ballot Super Tuesday. And Biden's numbers, as they are going downward right now in the polling, uh, because people are scratching their heads and saying, wow, I thought he was the most electable, yet he hasn't been able to get elected. <laughs> uh, you know, he hasn't won any contests. So, um, but national polling is really not that important in a presidential race. 
other than for fundraising and other optic reasons. Biden is well ahead in a majority of the states coming up. So he's ahead significantly in South Carolina. He's ahead in Nevada. He's ahead in Texas. He's ahead in California, but not by much to Bernie. Um, But, you know, you just don't know because you have a major candidate, perhaps like Elizabeth Warren or Tom Steyer, who drop out, those votes are going somewhere. You know, so right now it's uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders fighting for the, you know, the more liberal wing of the party. And you have Buttigieg, Klobuchar and Biden fighting for that middle lane with the new addition of uh, Bloomberg. You know, as you know, we had a couple of candidates drop out Tuesday night, Senator Bennett and um, Mr. Yang. Uh, So, you know, that's it's kind of where things lie right now. It'll be interesting to see where those candidates' votes go, there's a lot of thought that we probably won't see much in terms of a shrinking field after Nevada and South Carolina. But I will say this, a lot of Democrats are nervous. They want to make sure we nominate a candidate that can beat the president. And if Joe Biden does not come in first or second in Nevada, and he must come in first in South Carolina. I don't think he's going to be able to last. Um, he's having fundraising challenges, but um, you know he's been using South Carolina from day one as his firewall, and we'll see if that firewall will hold up. You know he still has significant support amongst the largest, most loyal demographic in the Democratic Party, and that's black women, um, and he still has a majority of overall black voters. If that holds up. He should be able to continue. You know, it's amazing how, I think you said, 4% of the delegates or less were chosen in New Hampshire and, and Iowa. 1%, 4% oh, 1%. by South Carolina and Nevada. And yet they have such a huge impact on the race. Why? I mean, I would think the reason why is because it's all over the media. But why do the, how come the Democrats uh, or the Republicans, why haven't they ever changed this? I mean, what do they get out of having such a small, you know, two tiny states, so to speak, have such an impact? Well, there's pluses and minuses to it, for sure. But the original logic reasoning for it is they're two small states, very small states, easy enough to get around and allows for the old traditional shoe leather retail politics. If the first state in the nation was California, I don't know that many Californians would ever meet the candidates. That's true. Just about every moving body in Iowa and New Hampshire, if they haven't met them, they've had the opportunity to meet them multiple times. Every single candidate, whether they're in you know coffee shops or in your coffee clutches in someone's home, in addition to the rallies and all the other stuff. So it, it continues to keep the rich tradition of retail politics, which uh, you know many may find romantic, but is also important to the process. But now as you're starting to span out and have multiple states coming soon on single days, that takes infrastructure and heavy finance where, you know, people who might not have as big of an infrastructure or name recognition nationally or resources can still make a a punch and an impact in states like Iowa and New Hampshire. Now, a lot of people will argue, and I think it's a very cogent uh, argument, that Iowa and New Hampshire are not reflective of the United States. Uh, those populations are, are, are majority white, very few minorities, and we haven't really seen the minority impact yet on the uh, primaries, which we will see in Nevada for sure. 
Mm-hmm. And then again in South Carolina, where 40% of the Democratic vote is African-American. Oh, that's interesting. So why does New Jersey hold its primary so late, June 2nd, which I think is the last day for primary elections, us and two other states? Why do we do that? Doesn't that make New Jersey irrelevant? Um, no, <laughs> unless you had a front-loaded system where somebody was elected early on. Look, the last several primaries we had, Obama-Clinton went down to the wire to the end, as did Clinton-Sanders went down to the wire and the end. Uh, We almost had a broker convention at both. Uh, New Jersey gets a disproportionate amount of delegates, more than they would get if they had a front-loaded primary, because the Democratic National Committee awards folks who have later primaries more delegates. I had no idea. Yeah, and, and, and so the logic and reason for that is New Hampshire and Iowa, if somebody were to try, if a state were to try to move their caucus or primary before them, they would just move it earlier and it'd be like a, you know, a standoff. Yeah. So there's some respect given, although, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire's uh, delegates are very, very small numbers compared to um, Iowa has 41, New Hampshire has 24, Nevada has 36, South Carolina has 54, New Jersey has 126 delegates pledged. And there are a couple of, of states on that June uh, 2nd date, and there's also a primary after June 2nd. Uh, June 2nd is the District of Columbia, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, and South Dakota with New Jersey having the lion's share more than all those other states combined. And then we have the last caucus in the Virgin Islands with seven delegates. That's important because Jersey's going to be in play very much so, because mm-hmm. I don't think this contest is going to be over by then. Well, that's great to know. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I just assumed since it happened so late, what's the point? Um, But as you pointed out, it has gone down to the wire and we get a few extra delegates for it. So let's just say that, uh, and I don't know if this is realistic, uh, but let's just say there's three or four candidates at the end of June who have like, I don't know, 20, 25 percent of the delegates. So you have three or four contenders going in. What's the process there? I mean, I know. You need half of the delegates, so you don't get half. Nobody gets half. What happens? Well, so a couple of things. First of all, and all of the candidates in the field right now know this, um, but if I'm advising a candidate, I am going to make sure they know. Uh, let, let me give an example of this rather than just be didactic here. Um, let's say someone like Elizabeth Warren, who does have resources, who is polling well, You know, she's in double digits in every state and nationally in the high teens. She could end up with three or four hundred delegates, maybe even more by convention time. She'd be out of her mind after spending all those resources, time, energy, attention, tax on the family and everything else. Not to stay in for a brokered convention where she could go to the dance and say, hey, candidate X. 
here's what I want. And listen, I'm, I'm not trying to be Jersey with everybody and be transactional, but let's be candid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're <laughs> not the only ones that do that. This is a transactional business. And so that candidate could say, I want these issues focused on. Here's what I want. And, and, and you know, a whole list of conversations, including, uh, you know, positions of stature on the campaign and afterwards and so on and so forth. Yeah. All within the law, of course. But, you know, I mean, if I am the last two viable candidates with a shot at it, I'm going to want to court those other yeah. candidates to, to bring those delegates to me. But here's the, here's the important thing. Once you drop out of the race, those delegates are not bound to you anymore. Yeah. So they're open fodder. And that's what you saw during the Obama-Clinton piece and the uh, Clinton-Sanders piece, where each campaign goes after those delegates. So let's say... We get to uh, the Virgin Islands caucus on the uh, the 6th of June, and nobody's at that magical 1991 number. Then between then and July 13th, when the convention is in Milwaukee, you have uh, whatever it is, five or six weeks of intense campaigning to try to build your delegate base, try to cut your deals. Um, and then on the first ballot, if nobody reaches that 1991, then the superdelegates weigh in on the second round. You could have a broker convention. You could just have an open fight. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, very fluid system. Uh, you know, I don't know that Bernie Sanders could deliver his delegates to a person like Michael Bloomberg yeah. or Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg and possibly vice versa. So there's a lot of uh, moving parts. So it, it, it's in their interest to kind of never really drop out and, and, and free their delegates up unless they've just had it and, and they don't want to participate in that process. But um, I, I, I don't see a real easy scenario because of the, the, the very big divide in the party, let alone the nation, that this would uh, result in, in somebody having the majority of the votes, uh, you know, 50% plus one vote um, to go to the convention with, uh, with that. And by the way, I mean, that's kind of a hobble way to nominate somebody. If, if the winner only gets, you know, a few votes over 50%, you've got over 45% of the party not supporting you. Yeah. So, you know, there's a building uh, that is required and this, all a part of the process. This, assuming that's what happens, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Democrats have not had a brokered convention in what 30 40 50 years or, or am i wrong yeah no that in, in essence that's accurate um uh, you know clinton was able to to get the nomination without having it be brokered although sanders was not very supportive of her after the convention yeah um and obama was able to get clinton's support and you know clinton went up on stage if you remember in 08 and yep. and supported him and campaigned for him but i don't think we've seen anything like this uh since miami um, and you know that that that's that's got a lot of uh, conjures up a lot of uh, bad memories for people, uh, riots in the streets, et cetera, et cetera. So the most important thing from the party perspective is to make sure, regardless of who the nominee is, we don't cannibalize ourselves yeah. and end up with a hobbled nominee that Trump will make mincemeat out of right. and have another McGovern-Nixon scenario. Yes. Let's talk, you know, uh, a little bit about the candidates. I mean, you've already said quite a bit. All the people you mentioned, you know, viable candidates, Sanders, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Biden, Warren, Bloomberg, 
Are there two or three that you see as the front runners, as the ones most likely to win the convention? Although, again, that's probably impossible to say. But I'll ask you anyway. So here's a couple of ways to answer that question. Straight up, you know, I could make the argument, although I don't know if I'd pass the red face test uh, because I don't really believe this, but you could make an argument that Pete Buttigieg is the front runner because he's got 22 delegates to Bernie's 21 to Warren's eight, Klobuchar seven, and Biden six. You could also make the argument that Bernie Sanders is the front runner because he has the second most delegates, but he's leading uh, in in a lot of the races that are coming up, uh, as well as Joe Biden is. So, you know, I think we're going to know a little bit more about the front runner, who, as you know, up until the fall was Joe Biden. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> he was a front runner by a lot. You know, yeah. he was up in a poll significantly, not as much. Um, and he seemed to have the bandwidth, the capacity. You know, I think everybody has a good enough resume to be considered. I don't think that's the question. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's some interesting things going on uh, in a very unconventional political era we're in where you know, I could see any of these folks becoming the nominee. The question becomes their viability against the president. Biden's going to continue to argue that he's the most electable, and everybody else is going to argue, well, if he is, he hasn't won an election yet. And then you have somebody like Bloomberg. I mean, there's a billion reasons why he's the front runner. <laughs> yeah. you, know? Um, you know, he spent upwards of $360 million already building an infrastructure. Um, he's polling relatively well. And when you think about it, all these other candidates have been in the race for over a year, some of them two years, and yet he just dropped in a couple of weeks ago and, uh, you know, has leapfrogged ahead of somebody like Senator Booker, who just dropped out, yeah. you know, to yeah, before it's, the uh, it's Iowa caucuses. After Senator Booker spent, you know, a year uh, in Iowa, in New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina, working and raising money and all, but now, this is not easy. The other issue is Sanders has an extraordinary amount of money. Buttigieg has enough. Amy Klobuchar needs to raise money, and she's raised a couple of million dollars because of her showing in New Hampshire in the last couple of days, 48 hours or so. But what does all that mean uh, when <laughs> Michael Bloomberg can just you know, drop, a, drop a wallet on the scale um, of his own money? Uh, he doesn't need to raise money, which is time-consuming and taxing. Yes. So, yes. you know, I mean, front-runner right now, um, you know, it's, it's, it depends on your perspective. Yeah. Um, and we just don't know what the next couple of contests are going to look like and whether two people who have a real great shot in Buttigieg and Klobuchar, but can they sustain – they don't have national operations. You know, yeah. Biden's got an operation and organization in every state, as does Sanders. Warren, to a little less degree, but Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg do not. They're now boning up. What does that mean? They got a higher staff. Sounds easy. It's not so easy because most of the good staff is already taken up. Yeah. So, you know, you got to reach out to folks. Uh, who've either dropped out already or folks who are like less enthusiastic about their candidate, you got to put an infrastructure in place. You got to open up headquarters. You got to have a game plan uh, and start to buy media and do earned media. You know, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's hard. 
It's very yeah, hard. I would never want to run for president. Then again, I, I don't know that anybody would vote for me, but I don't want to do it anyway. So, you know, what people ask me, you know, friends or whatever, who do, who do I think is going to win or who's in first place? I say, you know what? Come back to me after Super Tuesday and maybe I'll have a better idea. I agree with you. Right now, it's just impossible. So who are the candidates? And I know probably a lot of them are waffling, but who of the major candidates uh, have the most backing in New Jersey, you know, as far as elected officials and so on? Or is everybody uh, waiting to see uh, who's left before they make a decision? Is there a favorite here? Do people like Biden or Bernie Sanders? Well, first of all, out of respect and admiration, the party in New Jersey for the most part, kept their powder dry out of respect for Senator Booker. Right. When he dropped out a couple of weeks ago, uh, people started to make their way to other candidates. Now, prior to that, Bernie Sanders has always had a significant organization here. And Bernie Sanders has also announced, not publicly, but you know, in the political world, that he's going to run lines this year. What does that mean? That means every county and every congressional district will have a Bernie Sanders line with a congressional candidate and local freeholder candidates, etc. Michael Bloomberg is not going to take that route, but Michael Bloomberg has hired some big talent in the state. So he's got a fundraiser in the state. He's got a campaign manager in the state. And today he announced his chair for New Jersey, and that's the mayor of Patterson, Mayor Andre Saya. Uh, who would be chairing his campaign in New Jersey. Uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg has a p- prolific fundraiser, as in Orrin Kramer oh, on his wow. team. Yeah. Uh, Jim McGreevy is on his team. Uh, Joe Biden also has a significant number of supporters from New Jersey. I think more will come out perhaps after he gets through South Carolina. If he doesn't, win in South Carolina, uh, unfortunately, I suspect the vice president will drop out. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he stays until Super Tuesday, but he's got to have a powerful showing. Um, And then Amy Klobuchar, who's been in the state twice and has done a little fundraising, doesn't have any really notable names Uh um, from New Jersey, but she also has a Jersey presence. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I guess it sounds like if I had to guess... That we're going to see, unless there's some, there's only one or two leading candidates that come about that are still left uh, in June when we have our primary, we're probably not going to see anybody in New Jersey who's the overwhelming uh, favorite. And we'll see, you know, different political leaders uh, and and fundraising types who are backing different candidates, which makes things exciting, you know. Um, Which of the candidates are the most conservative on uh, business and tax issues, if you had to pick one or two? By far, without a doubt, uh, in in this order. Uh, Amy Klobuchar is as business-friendly, reasonable, rational, middle-of-the-road as you're going to get. Right behind her is Mayor Pete, and right behind him is Biden. That's the moderate wing, as pro-business as you're going to get, although they're friendly with labor. Right. Uh, Warren and Sanders, not so much. Uh, but, you know, the ultimate businessman is Michael Bloomberg. Yes. Uh, although, when it comes to taxes, you know what he was like as mayor of New York. He introduced the, 
huge tobacco tax and the sugar tax, and et cetera, et cetera. So he's got a pretty bad record when it comes to taxes from a business perspective. But, um, you know, if you were to kind of put a scale together, that's how you would go uh, from the extreme left of Sanders and Warren. And as you move more towards the center, you get the other four, Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Bloomberg. Okay. So um, who do you think, assuming you could just choose any Democratic candidate, which one do you think would have the best shot at beating President Trump? Well, I I don't believe that Senator Sanders can win. Um, I respect him. I think he's got a big heart. I think he's got an incredible base of supporters that are loyal. And I also think he's got some, you know, chutzpah and charisma. Uh, But I don't think he can win. Um, And I think if he were to run, um, he would put a lot of states in play that are not in play or should not be in play. Mm -hmm. Number two, Elizabeth Warren, you know, look, having nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman. She's extremely intelligent. Uh, she works with my dad in the Congress on many very important issues, um, whether it's uh, civil justice reform uh, or the salt tax issue, which I know a lot of your members have worked hard on, uh, which was really a terrible thing for us. You know, she, she's, she's got a lot of talent and skill. I just don't think she's ripe for the picking to beat this president. But when you get to the remaining four, Jeff, I would have said this with much more conviction four months ago. I say it with a little less conviction, but I think Joe Biden is best positioned because of his resume, his foreign policy skills, being next to Barack Obama for eight years in a real meaningful position. He wasn't just a lapdog. He did a lot of work for President Obama in the legislature. Uh, For example, getting the ACH passed was incredibly Uh, attributable to Joe Biden's skill set. He's also well-respected in the Senate. On the other side of the aisle, too, uh, the Republican Senate, which is petrified of Trump, but they like uh, Biden and and can work with him on certain issues. But, you know, I think Biden is the most electable, and yet he's got some fundamental flaws. He's slowed down. He's not as dynamic and physical as he used to be, and, and, and maybe that's just him at bad times. But I would also say this. When you're looking and judging these candidates, Joe Biden was the front runner up until the end of last year, but he started to have a downward spiral because everybody was beating the crap out of him. Yeah. Booker, Kamala Harris, Warren, Sanders, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, they were all attacking him. And it's easy to go up in the debate stage when it's just you versus someone else. It's far harder when you're on a stage of 12 and 11 people are taking pot shots at you. That's not easy. So, you know, I do give him a little bit of credit for that. I've seen the polling head to head. He's the only candidate that is even close to Trump in a state like Texas. Do I think he can win Texas? Probably not. But he's within two points. He beats him in Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. Uh, Doesn't beat him in Ohio. But, you know, as of in the last week, uh, we'll do some more polling next week on that stuff. But my concern about the other candidates for different reasons is, are we ready to elect the first woman? And if we are, Klobuchar is extremely impressive. She's not a you know left wing, whatever you want to call it. She's pragmatic. She's a former prosecutor. She's a parent. Um, she tells a very compelling story 
and she did a very nice job speaking on uh, Tuesday night in New Hampshire. I mean, Buttigieg, to me, mm-hmm. is the future. Might be a potential VP, maybe. Who knows? But you know, the mayor of a, a South Bend, smaller than Patterson, New Jersey, uh, you know, is a good war veteran. He's doing something that I think is invaluable for the gay and lesbian community in this country. He's giving them hope that that's no longer going to be a black eye, if you will, or an issue, if you will. But the fact of the matter is, as a lot of polling shows this, it's going to be very hard for Pete to get minority support. He's very adept. He's great orator, very disciplined, raised a lot of money. But I just think that the campaign will be more about Trump, you know, playing that issue. And, and then a lot of people will be just personally deflated over that. And yet he's given a lot of people hope. A lot of young people I've talked to from the gay and lesbian community, I give them credit for that. And I give Mayor Pete credit for having the courage to do that and and put his personal life on the stage. So, you know, I I, I don't want to say we're going to be Trump no matter what. But the most important thing is we have to elect the strongest, most viable candidate, and we have to all come together around them. And I'm just hoping that the past doesn't repeat itself, because I think Bernie Sanders really hurt Hillary Clinton a lot four years ago. She certainly had a lot of self-inflicted wounds, well, yeah. but his supporters did not support Hillary uh, to the numbers uh, that would have made a difference. Yeah, I could keep you here all day, but, but I won't. I learned a lot. You know, as a matter of fact, like I said, my friends and non-political people are always asking me these questions about the presidential race. And I'm like, well, how would I know? I'm focused on uh, the state stuff. So now I can say, you know what? Don't bother me. Listen to my podcast with Bill Pascrell and you'll understand. So anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. And hopefully we'll be able to do this again. Oh, thank you for having me, Jeff. And all the best to you and your members. Thanks again to Bill Pascrell for talking to us about the bewildering presidential primary process. It'll be very interesting to see how things play out in the coming months. And before we end this episode, I'd like to ask those listeners who are CPAs to please consider making a contribution to the New Jersey CPA Political Action Committee, also known as the PAC. The PAC, which is run by a board comprised of CPAs, financially supports candidates for state office who support the issues and goals important to CPAs and the business community. We need to make sure that there are legislators who will promote policies that will improve New Jersey's business environment. To donate or learn more about the PAC, go to njcpa.org PAC. That's it for today's episode. I hope you found it interesting and informative. If you like the Issues Watch podcast, you can subscribe for free on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks. Thanks for listening. 